Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, uh, often up at our Merrill campus. So it's a joy to be with you today and open God's Word. Uh, Today we're continuing in the series we've been in for a little while now about misquoted, misunderstood, or misused texts. Texts that are often uh, difficult to understand and apply correctly. And so today we're continuing in that series. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, uh, fire up that Bible. Open that Bible uh, because you'll want to follow along as we study God's Word today. So let me pray as we, uh, we dive into this time of instruction from the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are big and you love us and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Oh, good morning. Good morning, Kirsten. Good morning. How are you today? I'm great. Very good to see you. Uh, this is a, a, a little bit of a different look for you. I think it's a, it's I a knew little it. night. I knew that if I dressed like I do every day of the week here at church, people like you would make judgments of me. Oh, no. I mean, you must think that my colored hair, my tats, my piercings mean I am not a Christian. I knew it. Not at all. I suspected no. this. I bet you even think I am a wolf in sheep's clothing. You preach grace, 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 and then expect me to have my hair in a bun and a head covering on and a long dress like an Amish woman. <gasps> do you judge the Amish too? Kirsten, I, I bet don't, you do. I don't know what you're talking about. Don't interrupt me. I bet you secretly judge other people too, like Pastor Dave in his 1985 leisure suit he wears each week. <laughs> I mean, is it too stylish and modern for you? And did you know that some of his counselees have nicknamed him Yoda and he doesn't even object? I bet your nose gets all out of joint when he allows for this nickname because Yoda is a pantheistic, godless Star Wars character. I bet you even suspect him of being a Trekkie. And if you get into his business like that, that means if Pastor Dave's a Trekkie, his wife, Carol, must be a Trek girl. And now you're judging her, too. Kirsten, I I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, stop man-interrupting me. Oh, and then what about Pastor Dan Mack? I mean, when he was young, he had his hair way down past his shoulders. Mullet boy. He looks like he came straight out of Woodstock. I bet you think less of him for every inch of hair below his ears. You're so judgmental. Can, can we just stop, baby? Oh, don't interrupt. And then there's Jared, the wild child. He's got a... Yeah, he's even got a few tats of his own. Oh, my! And look at... He even had gauges. <laughs> You know, speaking of gauges and piercings, I bet you have to hold secret prayer meetings for gals like me who have more than one piercing or even a man who has one piercing. Well, Mr. Judgmental, as the good book says, judge not lest you be judged. Kirsten, I don't know what's going on right now. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know what's going on. I just meant to say hello and to, to wish you a good day. And I don't... <laughs> I don't think it's going to be a good day anymore. Not at all. Well, now that you got a glimpse into a normal day at the office and our wardrobe, 
we're going to dive into our text. We're thankful to Pastor Isaiah, who lend, uh, lent uh, Kirsten some of his wardrobe and accessories for that. <laughs> now, this is very clearly a silly opening, a, a very silly opening at a co-worker's expense. And yet, the way that we saw Kirsten use Matthew 7, verse 1, in this skit, judge not that you be not judged, is how many wield this text in our day and age. The character that Kirsten played was more in violation of what Jesus intends for this passage than she was accusing me of. And it's not because of her wardrobe or her hair or her tattoos. The reason she was in more violation of what Jesus is trying to teach here is because she betrayed a judgmental attitude. She didn't give me the benefit of the doubt. She didn't treat me as she would like to be treated. It turns out she was on the hunt for sin. She was on the hunt for the speck in my eye the whole time she was unaware of her judgmental attitude. In this silly opening, and the silly illustration, Kirsten's character not only misuses Matthew 7, verse 1, but she illustrates one of the ways that it is commonly understood. She betrays one of the attitudes that Jesus is actually addressing in this passage. Now, you're probably aware there's a range of ways that this passage is misused, misquoted, and misunderstood. What I hope you hear me say today is that this verse actually walks a very narrow line. Because on the one side, it doesn't prohibit all kinds of judgments and ethical assessments. It doesn't even prohibit us from going to a brother and sister in Christ to have a conversation about sin or inconsistency in their life. But it does prohibit us from ever having a critical attitude, a judgmental attitude, or adopting upon ourselves some type of special role as inspector, investigator, or judge. There's a whole range of ways that this passage is used and misused. And one of the things that we need to be aware of is that this passage is talking about attitude, it's talking about the posture of the heart. It's indeed what Jesus is trying to get at. Now again, there's a wide range of ways that this is misused. Sometimes this passage is used rather casually just to refer to something that we disagree with, a preferential issue. We might say, she painted her house lime green? Oh, what a terrible color, but to each their own, I'm not supposed to judge. We hear that passage used like that all the time. And, and we realize when we use that passage like this, we're just acknowledging differences and it's not worth worrying about or talking about. But that's not what Jesus really has in mind in this passage. It's not really what the text is doing. Perhaps a more serious misusage of this passage, one that is quite common actually, is when this verse is used to defend or ignore immoral or unethical behaviors. For example, we might hear someone say, he's a greedy man, but I'm not supposed to judge. We might hear someone say, she drinks way too much, but judge not, lest you be judged. Another might say, love is love, I'll love, her, love whoever I please. Who are you to judge? And so sometimes this passage is used to squash questions, objections, and critiques. Sometimes this passage is even used to excuse ourselves from having a difficult conversation, a needed conversation with someone who is pursuing self-destructive choices. Other times this passage is used to simply say, mind your own business. How dare you put a moral claim on my life? 
What we need to be concerned about today is what Jesus had in mind. What we need to be concerned about with is what Jesus means when he says these words in his longest and most comprehensive teaching. What did Jesus mean when he said these words? Did he really mean to say that all of life's choices are equal? Did he really mean for us just to mind our own business? Is he really saying that we should never have a moral or ethical opinion or judge these types of situations? We can be certain that these are not the things on Jesus' mind. He certainly didn't intend any of these misuses or misquotes. And when we use a passage like this, not only do we ignore the immediate context when we use them it in that way, but we ignore the clear teaching of the rest of Scripture. Let me read our text today, our, our verse, and then the following one, so we can hear the immediate context. This is Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Our passage today comes to us within what is commonly known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Prior to this sermon, the narrative in Matthew tells us that Jesus went through the entire countryside. He went all through Galilee to cities and villages and synagogues, and he did one main thing. He announced the gospel. He announced the good news that the time had come for the kingdom of God to arrive. This is what Jesus announced everywhere. This is the gospel, the good news that Jesus commands people to believe. The reign of God is at hand, and it's coming through him. And this announcement that he said everywhere was attested with many powerful miracles and wonders. So much so that Matthew tells us that a huge crowd from all over Israel and even beyond gathered around Jesus, bringing their sick and their demon-possessed to be healed. And so Jesus, he ascends to the top of a tall hill. He gathers his disciples around us, around him, and he preaches this sermon. It's clear from context that it's the disciples who are being addressed, but there's a large crowd that is listening in. This is the context for the Sermon on the Mount, where we find our text today. But there's one more important thing that we must do before we dive into our text. And that is to remember the big idea, the main theme of this entire sermon. The theme of this sermon from the beginning to the end is the kingdom of God, once again. The big idea is about the reign of God that Jesus has already been announcing all throughout Galilee. And so in this sermon, he outlines the kinds of citizens who will enter his kingdom and the ethic they will live by. Jesus says the ethic of his kingdom, the righteousness of his kingdom, must exceed even the religious teachers of their day. And it's because Jesus' ethic is superior. Jesus' ethic fulfills even the law of Moses. Do not murder is exceeded by such genuine love that kingdom people won't even harbor hatred or insults against a neighbor. Do not commit adultery is exceeded by such a pure love that kingdom people will not even look lustfully at another. 
Theologians have rightly recognized and called this sermon Jesus' kingdom manifesto because in it he publicly declares the policies and the aims of his reign, the reign that will be established and put into effect, lived out by his people when he's exalted on the cross, raised to the throne, and given the throne of Israel and the nations. And so as we come to our text today in this sermon, we come to a warning passage. Today's text is one in a series of warnings offered by Jesus to preempt wrong thinking, to prevent his disciples from taking what he had just taught and take it and use it the wrong way. You see, Jesus has been teaching a radical commitment to God's kingdom and the righteousness demanded by it. And Jesus says, This does not give anyone permission to have a judgmental attitude. The rigor that Christ's followers must have in seeking the kingdom and its righteousness does not authorize a judgmental spirit. Now, in our English translation, the word judge in Matthew 7, verse 1, it comes to us from the Greek word krino. And this word has a very wide range of meanings, from judgments in a legal setting, discernment, making choices, or even particular kinds of attitudes. It's got a wide range of meaning, but we can easily rule out several meanings. First, we can rule out a judicial setting. This is not in talking about courtrooms or judges and juries. Jesus is not prohibiting legal systems then or in the future. But Jesus is not also talking about outlawing any and every kind of discernment or judgment. Because even in this very sermon, he makes many discernments, ethical judgments. They're necessary to pursue kingdom righteousness. And elsewhere, he tells his people to judge rightly. And so it's clear he's not prohibiting all kinds of judgments and discernment. Rather, he's prohibiting a certain kind of behavior, a certain kind of attitude. It turns out that this word, krino, refers to an attitude much more than it does some kind of action. What Jesus is prohibiting, what he's warning against, is in the pursuit of righteousness that we would become critical, censorious, hypercritical People. The prohibition here is against a haughty self-righteousness, a judgmental spirit that is on the hunt to find fault in others and enjoys shutting them up. In our little skit, that's what Kirsten did. That's what her character was doing. It's exactly what Jesus warned kingdom citizens not to do. Kirsten's character, she assumed a fault. She was on the hunt for sin. And her attitude was condemning, it was critical, it was harsh. She had a desire just to keep me silent. Jesus warns his disciples from developing this very kind of attitude. In verse 2, as Jesus continues, he gives us his reasoning for this warning. In verse 2, he gives us the reason, and to be honest, it's stern and a little scary. In verse 1, he had said, Judge not that you be not judged. Verse 2 continues, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Jesus says if you use critical scales to evaluate others, he's going to use critical scales to evaluate us. The one who thinks they can play the role of judge can't then plead ignorance of the law. The judgmental person who never shows forgiveness reveal that they don't know the forgiveness of God. Jesus here is warning against an attitude that betrays self-condemnation. 
Jesus here wants his people to be gracious, to be generous with others, to assume the best, and to treat others as we wish to be treated. Jesus wants us to treat others as we have been treated by God himself. Now, we need to be careful because Jesus is not telling his disciples to turn a blind eye to sin. Never would he say that. Rather, he's encouraging his disciples to be generous. One theologian put it like this, Jesus does not tell us to cease to be men by suspending our critical powers which help distinguish us from animals, but rather to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God by setting ourselves up as judges. In our text, Jesus is addressing disciples who will rigorously pursue kingdom righteousness, which is good. What is not good is when we, in that pursuit, develop harsh, severe, or critical attitudes because we begin to think we're better or more righteous than other people. Instead of looking for the worst in others, kingdom people look for the best. We look for the best in others, and when we have that kind of attitude, the text seems to suggest God will look for the best in us. By the scale we measure, it will be measured to us. And in this regard, I actually think of Pastor Dan Shields, one of my co-workers and dear friend. Uh, I can talk about him today because he's not here, so that makes it easy. But it makes me think of something that Dan said a few years ago, something I've seen him live out every day that I've known him. Four years ago, when we were both new at Highland, Dan said to me, Adam, I want you to know that I will always assume the best in you. He continued, if anyone ever makes a critical comment, I will not entertain it, discuss it, or harbor it. I will always assume the best. You see, Pastor Dan had been a pastor for years. I was brand new. Pastor Dan had experience shepherding the flock, and so he knew that sometimes God's people can slide into a critical or judgmental attitude. And his commitment right then and there was to neither participate in it or entertain it for a moment. He told me that if someone had a problem with me, he would assume the best and send them to me. He said that if he ever had a problem with me, he'd assume that he is wrong and then come talk to me. I've seen him live out this looking for the best in others ever since I've known him, a gracious and generous attitude that I think Jesus is warning against having the opposite. He wants us to be generous, to be loving, to be gracious with others. As Christ followers, we're called to discard critical and judgmental attitudes as we radically pursue kingdom righteousness. And if I'm being honest, I hope if you're being honest, we would say that this is one of the most difficult things we face as Christians. And I don't think I'm exaggerating. I think most Christians at times slide into judgmental attitudes. Some people are even stuck there. It's why it's so difficult, and this is why it's so difficult. Because to pursue kingdom righteousness, we need to constantly be discerning between good and bad. We need to continually be judging between righteousness and unrighteousness as we grow in righteousness. And as soon as we begin to grow and have a measure of success in discerning good and bad, no sooner than we have a little bit of success as we use it as justification to become self-righteous critics of others. Whenever this happens, we betray that we have not understood the grace and forgiveness and generosity of God. We fall under judgment ourselves. 
We're reminded from the context that pursuing kingdom righteousness requires that we make all kinds of critiques and judgments all the time as we grow in righteousness. But then this passage comes right up behind it and says it never gives us permission to be critical or judgmental of others. One of my professors said it like this regarding this verse. He said, the critic feels at home in all the biblical passages that encourage us to spot false prophets by their fruit. I'm not being judgmental, he protests. I'm just a fruit inspector. But by his own mouth, he stands condemned. He has become a fruit inspector. He has taken upon himself some special role. To say it another way, as disciples of Jesus pursuing righteousness, we need to be able to spot good and bad fruit, but to take upon ourselves some position as a fruit inspector, it usurps God and invites him to inspect us with the same critical measures. Now, I hope you're asking, does this mean that we are to never talk to a brother or sister about sin in their life? Is this passage prohibiting us from coming alongside a sibling in Christ? to confront behavior inconsistent with the gospel? Absolutely not. That is not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, elsewhere in Matthew 18, verses 15 and following, Jesus not only gives us permission, but he gives us instruction on how to confront a brother or sister who's sinned against us. Here's what he says. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if we continue reading this passage, we quickly see this is never to be done with a judgmental attitude, rather a restorative one. The goal of confronting a sibling in Christ over sin is to genuinely help them, to restore the relationship and to offer them forgiveness. Even in this passage, if we were to continue reading it, if the person refuses to be reconciled, the process doesn't end there. You bring another with you, and then another. You bring the church with you. You exhaust every possible option, and only then, if a brother or sister refuses to be reconciled, do you hand them over to that decision. It's never critical. It's never judgmental. It oozes grace. It oozes restoration. Jesus tells us that when we go to a brother or sister who sinned against us, It must be with an attitude that promotes reconciliation and restoration. On the contrary, here in our passage, he warns us from ever having the attitude that would push others away and cause division. This attitude only invites judgment on the judgmental. And so as we return to our passage, and as Jesus continues, he offers an example of the kind of judgmental attitude that he's talking about. And sadly, His example of a hypercritical attitude is so common at times in Christian circles that I think we need to be very serious. We need to take seriously the bold teaching of Jesus here and not let its bold teaching get lost in the familiarity of this passage. Because this is how Jesus continues in verse 3. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here Jesus is drawing attention to the hypocrisy of the hypercritical attitude. The attitude that is sometimes widespread and rampant. And it's not an exaggeration for Jesus to compare a speck to a plank. I think to illustrate this further, I want to 
talk about one of the, maybe the most blatant examples of this I could think of in scripture. It comes to us from 2 Samuel chapter 12. In this chapter, the prophet Nathan is sent by God to go confront King David. And if you remember, right before this chapter, King David had committed some heinous crimes. Despite having a harem of his own women, King David sees the wife of another bathing on the roof one night and repeating the words from Genesis 3, when Eve saw the fruit was good and she took it, he saw Bathsheba was good and sent men to take her. Not long after that night, David finds out she's pregnant. And so to cover up his sin, he sends for her husband, who's out on the front lines, to come home and enjoy a night with his wife. And when the husband gets there, it turns out he's far godlier than King David. When the man refuses to enjoy the comforts of home while his comrades are still out on the battlefield, King David sends him back to the front lines with orders to have him executed. Despite having many women, power, and wealth, King David took this man's beloved wife and then had him killed. And God is far from pleased. God is upset, and so he sends Nathan the prophet to confront King David but he does it indirectly. He does it by telling David a parable. Here's what he tells David. He tells him about a poor man who has nothing but a little lamb. And he loves this lamb. It was raised with his kids. It eats from his table. It drinks from his cup. It sleeps in his arms. He loves this little lamb. But then he tells him about a rich man who has flocks upon flocks. He has so many sheep But one night he stole this little lamb from the poor man to feed it to his party guests one night. And when David hears all of this, he is outraged. He is terribly upset and his wrath burns. He demands not only that the rich man restore the poor man fourfold, but he demands his execution. He's completely unaware of Nathan's tactics and the irony of the situation. And so when he demands the name of this wicked man, Nathan says, you are the man. David is completely blind in the story. He's completely unaware of the plank that is hanging out of his eye. And he's ready to put to death another for the speck in his. And the greatest sin illustrated in all of this is David's pride completely ignorant to his pride. This is a real-life example of what Jesus is talking about in our passage. And though it's a, a bit more of an extreme example, I personally find it pathetic and sad how often I slide into this very same hypocrisy, how often and how easy it is for Christ followers to betray this same kind of attitude. And so to close our time today, what I want to do is suggest four areas where sometimes... Maybe often, we fall into the same kind of hypocrisy. Four common areas where this hypocrisy at times infects Christians like a deadly mold. The first example is what I'm going to call the doctrine critic. The doctrine critic. The doctrine critic frequently and often heatedly focuses only on the disagreements they have with other Christ followers, on belief and doctrine. Regardless of how much that person loves God, regardless of how much that person clings to Scripture, the doctrine critic only focuses on and regularly brings up all the areas they differ on. These differences are brought up in conversations with others not to offer a legitimate alternate point of view, but rather to squash the other, 
to cast judgment on them. And the person, the doctrine critic, they reveal that they're completely ignorant of their own sin. They're ignorant of the clear teaching of Christ, which says we're to use our tongues for good, to use our tongues to speak well of each other. Now, to be sure, there will be disagreements on doctrine and belief in the church. No doubt, 2,000 years attest to that. But we must remember that this never gives us permission to have a judgmental attitude. We have far, far more in common with our brothers and sisters in Christ in what we believe as Christians than we do differences. And so when we focus only on the differences, we betray a wrong kind of attitude. When we have differences, what we should do is graciously and with genuine curiosity have a conversation with the other person with an eagerness to submit to the word of God together. This is an area that I pray for grace, that the Lord would give me power to practice what I preach. A second area where this hypocrisy is at times live and well in the church is what I'm going to call the those sins critic. The those sins critic. This might be one of the most pervasive ways that Christians are blind to planks while on the hunt for specks. The those sins critic, it describes Christians who decry certain public sins, which might be common in the culture, or the sins that others are prone to commit. And while these sins always seem to come up, this critic is suspiciously silent or unaware of the sins they're attracted to. Friends, this is so pervasive that it's often the most common complaint against the church by people outside the church And we should take these charges seriously because it's the nature of the hypercritical to be blind to our own hypocrisy. This critic often is loud or outspoken about three or four sins that are easy targets because they're not the sins the critic struggles with. The Bible talks about sin all the time. Jesus spoke about sin left and right. But when we find ourselves always reaching for those sins over there to illustrate what God is against then we betray that there is a forest of planks in our own eye and we're completely blind to them. When we lack understanding, empathy, and grace for those sins over there, let us not forget that the way we judge, we will be judged. The third area that hypocrisy sometimes springs up and thrives in the church is in the young critic. Young people, I'm talking to you. Those of you who are young, those of you who were young, is it fair to say that it's easy to slide into a judgmental or critical attitude towards the generations that have gone before us? When we are young, especially in our teens and our 20s, we're experiencing and developing our identity, our worldview. We're being bombarded with all different kinds of teachings and belief, and we believe so many of them. And then we're quick to reject and mock tradition or the things that have gone before, what are considered outdated, while boldly declaring what is new and shiny. Teens it's really easy to slip into a judgmental attitude with mom and dad because you think they're outdated or dinosaurs. Teens and young adults, it's really easy to be critical of older coworkers because they have different values, different experiences, different priorities than you do. It's easy for all of us to fall in the trap of pointing that finger at the sins and differences of generations that have gone before us while ignoring the shortfalls and sins that we're prone to 
as a generation because of our youth, our inexperience, or our cultural setting. Lastly, the oldies, don't think you're off the hook. The last area we'll discuss where sometimes hypocrisy thrives in the church is with what I'm going to call old critics. Those of you who are older, is it fair to say that it's easy to slide into a judgmental attitude of the younger generation? It's why millennial jokes exist, right? I'm old enough to know how easy it is to slide into this type of attitude and and to stand against those who are younger than me. As a millennial myself, I'm usually the butt of the joke, but I can't believe that I've already slandered entire generations just because they're younger or have different experiences than my own. It's easy to look at the sins of their generation while ignoring the sins of my generation, calling them the good old days. And here's what I think is the scary part. I think the hypocrisy of the old critic is far more dangerous than the hypocrisy of the young critic because at least the young critic has an opportunity to grow out of it as they grow older themselves. While the old critic, sometimes the judgmental attitude, it rests on decades of pattern and behavioral behaviors established over long periods of time. I think we've all seen people who, as they age, they become more rigid, more intolerant, more judgmental, sometimes, sadly, even rude or nasty. If we find it easy to critique and be suspicious of the future because of the incoming generations, then perhaps we're blind to the stack of planks that are behind us in the last hundred years, which was the most bloody and violent in human history. Friends, we all need to be careful not to slide into judgmental attitudes. But thankfully, Jesus offers us an alternative. Jesus offers us a way that will produce within us a better attitude, an attitude that betrays that we are kingdom people. Jesus tells us to first, to first take the log out of our own eye. Before we can be helpful to help a brother or sister with the speck in their eye, we need to be able to see clearly. He doesn't say acknowledge the plank. He doesn't say notice the plank. He doesn't say hide it. He says get rid of it. Remove it from your eye first. And one reason that this will help us is because when we take this seriously, it's going to give us a humble and merciful attitude. We all have planks in our eyes, each one of us. Not one of us is excluded. And if we think it's easy for others to remove the speck from their eye, we've probably never tried to deal with the planks that are in our own. If we think it's easy to rid a common sin from life, then we probably never have. We only become qualified to help a brother or sister in Christ with the speck in their eye once we've struggled, once we've wrestled, once once we've resisted to the point of death, sin in our life, and had a measure of success and victory. Only then will we develop the right humble and merciful attitude that will be welcomed by a sibling in Christ as we come alongside them to help them with a speck. This will give us a reputable and trustworthy reputation as well, because no one's going to take seriously the advice of a hypocrite. When we walk the walk, then we get to talk the talk. When we tell people to do what I say, not what I do, we're betraying the same attitude that Jesus warns against. A critical posture is not something welcome in the kingdom of God. 
Our love must be how we lead. Our love must be made visible to others. It must be the attitude, the generosity that we've received from Christ. It must be the attitude that we think through as we talk to others about sin. As we lead with love, as we lead with generosity, let me leave you with these words as we remember that love is the right attitude. Love is the right posture of a kingdom citizen. Let us remember these words. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Friends, may we be the kind of people here at Highland that continually grow in this type of attitude. May we be the people that continually are honest about our planks, and may it grow us to have a loving, merciful, generous attitude, looking for the best in others the kind of attitude God has for us. Father, empower us by your spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your son Jesus, revealed to us the kingdom. Father, we're so grateful for his teaching that teaches us how to behave, how to be citizens of your kingdom. And Father, we're just thankful that You give us mercy and grace, that you give us forgiveness and power to live these things out. May we each seek you constantly. Father, give your spirit to us. Send your spirit among us to empower us to produce this kind of fruit. Father, may we all hear the warning of having a judgmental spirit, a judgmental attitude, and may we turn if we're convicted. Father, help us to be known for our generosity, for our love, for our graciousness and forgiveness just like your son. It's in his powerful name we pray. Amen.